The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and my guest today is David DeLugas, the founder and executive director of the National Association of Parents which is a nonprofit member organization that strives to be a voice for all parents in the United States, moms and dads, married and unmarried, all parents. You can find them online at parentsusa.org. Mr. DeLugas is also a family law attorney, a parenting coordinator, a mediator, and a guardian ad litem. So welcome aboard, David. Well, thank you, Dr. Colin. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the National Association of Parents. Well, it was interesting to me uh, to notice a few years ago that there is not an organization in the USA that represents the interests of mothers and fathers, again, married and unmarried, as you described it. There just isn't one. It it seems that parents are the um, taken-for-granted segment of our population, not only do we not get any economic benefits from our uh, presence as parents, as say children get discounts, older people get discounts, if you're an alum of a particular university, you might get discounts, but there's no affinity marketing group for parents, and it seemed to me with 140 million parents, we should be exerting our economic power, but more importantly, far more importantly, we don't really have a voice at all when it comes to public policy. And public policy really translates into social norms, legislation, policies, procedures, and the way schools, government, and others treat us, treat us as parents. And and it's very difficult for parents to push back uh, because the ultimate threat to any parent is begins with somebody saying or calling you or thinking that you're a bad parent. That alone is enough to bring shivers to most of us, and, and I'm a parent. My son is eight years old. And uh, beyond that, though, there's so much control over our children through, again, schools and our government. So to that end, it seemed to me there should be some organization that has no preset uh, agenda, that is not battling for dads, not battling for moms, not battling for homeschooling or public schools or any particular item, but instead is saying, we stand for parents, and we want to support the right of parents to raise their own children so long as they don't hurt their children, as the U.S. Constitution has been interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court to say. It says that parents have this right, yet seemingly on a daily basis, 
parents are contacting us and they're in the news where their rights are being violated and infringed day in and day out. Hmm. Leaves me a little confused because um, I, I raised a few kids and I didn't notice my rights being infringed every day. I thought I'm sending them off to school. The teachers are teaching them. They're not teaching them exactly what I'd like them to teach. They're not teaching them it exactly the way I'd like them to teach it. But I didn't notice a violation of constitutional rights. So could you say a little more about what what kinds of concerns people contact you with? Sure. Let, let me give you one. In, in a number of areas, there's some controversy about whether it is appropriate intervention, quote, on behalf of children. And keep in mind that in our society, uh, we have evolved to a place where if anybody invokes it's for the benefit or for the sake or for the safety of children, it seems that all restrictions, all rights can be infringed because, by golly, the ultimate goal or the desire to protect and help children is so important that it doesn't matter if it infringes on your rights. But the truth is that is often so over-exaggerated. Now, let, let me give you an example. And, and, this, and this was reported actually today on Reason.com, and the author is Lenore Skenazia, a person who uh, is the blogger and writer for FreeRangeKids.com. FreeRangeKids.com describes an attitude that parents perhaps should have, which is to provide their children with the freedom to grow up uh, and do and participate in activities and other things so that they learn, they, um, they mature, and they're not afraid. Uh, in, in this article, it uh, recounts the story of a Maryland mother and father who have two children, ages 6 and 10, who in November uh, had let their children go two blocks away from their home and play at a playground. But she was cited for allowing a child under age, quote, to be locked or confined in a dwelling, building, enclosure, or motor vehicle while the person charged is absent, which is apparently a, a statute or a law in Maryland uh, intended to protect children from being left alone in a car, uh, say, in a hot summer day and be at risk of, of some severe harm. Now, obviously, we don't want to leave children for long periods of time in cars where the conditions are, would endanger the child. But if you are pumping gas at the gas station, and you lock your child in the car, your young child in the car long enough to go inside, get a bottle of water, and pay, pay your, for your gas, uh, that isn't endangering your child at all yet. Again, we have people so worried about children that they're using that as an opportunity to tell parents, you can't do that. In this case, the children weren't confined in a dwelling or anything. They were at a park, yet Child Welfare Services in Montgomery County, uh, Maryland, got in touch with this family and investigated it. And eventually they dropped their investigation. Yet recently, the same two children were at the playground and were walking home, and they were less than a mile away. Let's see, this, this article describes it as they're less than a mile away. When uh, And think about it, a mile is not very far. It, it, it really isn't far. It's uh, some 1,600 paces. But that said, the, the children were picked up by a police officer and brought to the house where the police officer asked for the father's ID 
And the father didn't want to show the ID, but he was threatened that if he didn't show the ID, that um, the, the police officer was going to take the kids away. In any event, it continued to escalate where child welfare showed up in a, a few hours later with what's called a temporary safety plan that they wanted the, this father to sign where he would promise not to leave the children unsupervised until Monday when someone from the child welfare office would contact him, they would go through an investigation in this procedure. And I've seen that happen in cases. I'm an attorney licensed in Georgia, and I've seen those types, this type of situation happen in Georgia, and it's, it's absurd the level of power and authority given to child welfare, child protective services, whatever it's called in, in the 50 states, uh, because they don't have to get a warrant. They don't have to have a judge review it. They don't have to have probable cause. As long as it's, quote, for the safety of a child, they can do anything they want immediately, including taking children into state custody, putting them in a foster home and away from their own parents. Now, in this case, and in other cases I, I am contacted on regularly, the children are not hurt. They're not harmed. They have uh, no contusions, no bruises, no broken bones, no cuts, nothing. Nothing to indicate that children are being harmed. Certainly nothing to indicate they're being abused. In this case, it's they're walking to their own home, but because there's not an adult with them, a police officer puts them in the police car, takes them home, and Child Protective Services shows up. Now, if you that's, think about it, that, that's just beyond absurd. Which parent, what parent in America should be threatened with their child being taken away and them being, the parent being charged with criminal child neglect because they allowed their child to go to the park and play and walk home? That is astonishing to me. I, I know, and, and it seems it's one of those stories where, as, as Lenore reports in her story, the mother um, wrote, quote, I have to admit when I read stories on your site, referring to freerangekids.com, and elsewhere about CPS threatening to take kids away, I never thought it could happen to us. Well, that's how parents are. We just don't, well, that's somebody else. There, there must be some other thing that's not being reported in the news to give rise to that situation because police and child protective services, they would never, ever do something like that. Well, guess again. Uh, it was in the news not long ago, earlier this year, that a mother who, whose child care fell through for the day, and she was a worker at McDonald's, took her child, would, would have her child come to McDonald's and sit there all day while she worked her shift. And one day she gave her child her cell phone, dropped her off at the park nearby, and left her there to play. And the child was seven years old. The child played, and within an hour or so, somebody called the police after realizing the seven-year-old was at a park and there was no adult nearby. My goodness gracious. Now, we can talk about times are different, there are kidnapping of kids, and kids are in danger and all of that. But frankly, the statistics are, the true statistics are, no, that doesn't happen. It really doesn't happen. We should not, as a society, get to that point where we're so concerned about protecting our children from all harm, from all sources, at all times, that a parent cannot exercise their own judgment about the level of risk appropriate for their child under the circumstances the parent assesses. Now, this isn't a suggestion that the National Association of Parents or parents in general should allow and should, should cause their child to be harmed and hurt over 
the idea that they have the right to do that. That isn't what I'm saying. That isn't what this, these parents were saying. That isn't what the mom who took her child to the playground is saying. It is saying that those in our communities who call the police at every instance, uh, those who are in the law enforcement community or with Child Protective Services who want to intervene are exaggerating and not using the true risks in order to assess what needs to be happening. Now, give me an example. <clears throat> Your child is at greater risk, according to statistics, of being hurt. The number one cause of, of harm to a child is what? Riding in a moving automobile. Truth is, if we want to protect children from harm, we should tell all parents, all people, you're not, children are not allowed to ride in moving vehicles. They can't go to school in a bus. They can't ride around town in a car. Well, we sort of poo-poo that idea and say, no, 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 of course children, infants need to be in cars as long as they're in a car seat. And children should be in, able to ride around in the car with their mother or on a school bus as long as there's a seat belt or uh, in, in a car with a parent, uh, depending on their age and their weight. We've now regulated that to the point where they have to be in a car seat or a booster seat. Again, increasing safety, not a bad idea, not a terrible infringement of the rights of parents. So in those cases, um, similar to, say, our right under the Constitution to free speech, it's not, in, it's not total. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You can't do hate speech, the type that incites violence. You can't do certain types of things. Infringement of our rights is permitted under circumstances where there is what's called a compelling state interest. The compelling state interest then may be to protect children, but it has to be exercised in what the Constitution and U.S. Supreme Court calls the least restrictive means possible in order to accomplish the legitimate state interest, if there's a legitimate state interest. So what are we going to have next? Parents who allow their children to participate in gymnastics or diving or motocross or tackle football, especially if their child is injured, are they going to be charged with criminal child neglect? Is that really what we're coming to as a society? But the problem is, in the meantime, parents really don't have the freedom to make these decisions. Keeping in mind, all parents, all parents are subject to making mistakes. Not all parents make mistakes. Some parents make mistakes in judgment and do things like leave their child near a stove where there's uh, hot uh, grease on the stove and the child gets burned. These are accidents. We want to prevent them. But are we going to have a nanny state to the point where, in every instance, parents who have a stove are told they're not allowed to cook if the children are within 10 feet of the stove? Uh, these may sound like exaggerations, but I imagine those of us who are uh, of an age where we, our parents weren't required to put us in, in use seat belts in the car or we would be gone all day on our bicycles who knows where, and our parents certainly had no idea where we were as we played all day, especially, say, during the summer or during school breaks. Many of us would think the idea of an unsupervised child at a playground is probably a good idea, that there's nothing wrong with it. It's the worry warts. It's the people who read the news who say, oh, this could happen or that could happen, and the answer is yes. Things that are horrible and tragic can and do happen in America and around the world, and we have to find some balance and use some common sense. And the idea is it is the parent's right to make these decisions of risk assessment and not anybody else, not your neighbor, 
not the police, not Child Protective Services. Only th- that intervention is only permissible under the Constitution, or it should be, at that point where the risk assessment and judgment of the parent is so bad that the child is in imminent danger, imminent danger of actual harm, which is either physical harm, severe physical harm, or long-term emotional harm. Now, I'll take a breath here, but I can tell you the National Association of Parents is providing free legal services to a parent in the city of Fayetteville, Georgia, who was arrested, put in handcuffs, had to post bond because she had her children, young children, in a car. The doors were locked. The air conditioning was running. The engine was running. The air conditioning was on. As she, to some extent, used good judgment and stepped out of the vehicle in order to smoke a cigarette, and she talked on her cell phone, but somebody noticed the children in the car, didn't notice her nearby, and called the police. And the police officer arrested her under a city ordinance that makes it a criminal violation to have your child out of your eyesight. So if you're a parent who's at a restaurant and you get up to go get condiments or napkins, or God forbid you have to use the restroom when your young children are with you, and you decide, yeah, you know, they're eating their chicken nuggets, they're safe here, I'm going to run in the restroom or I'm going to go grab some napkins, I'll be right back. Under this city ordinance, you can be arrested and charged with a crime and potentially be fined up to $1,000 and six months in prison. That just doesn't make sense to me. Those are some very extreme examples. That's... I wish I could tell you they're, they're rare and far and few between. They're more and more common. They happen all the time. And here's really what's going on in my mind. Um, in my mind, what happens is because parents are so vulnerable, again, the threat of taking the child away is so severe, parents capitulate it at every uh, chance uh, in an instant. And more so, those with the power are prone to abuse it and use it. And the real tragedy in my mind, the real tragedy is there's a finite amount of resources that our government allocates to, say, Child Protective Services. Shouldn't those resources be used to prevent real harm. How about the situations that occasionally come up in the news where there's a report of abuse, uh, the report falls between the cracks, and later a child dies, and everybody is up in arms about, oh my gosh, how could this happen? Well, it happens because the workers in these various agencies seem to focus on the lo- what I call the low-hanging fruit. It's easy to go harass a parent and say, hey, you're a bad parent. You let your children walk home from the park. We're going to investigate you. They should say to the parent, hmm, well, you know, it's not the best idea perhaps, but, you know, I'm sure you're, you know what you're doing and it's the neighborhood and it's up to you to decide. We're going to go investigate that case we, that was called in where the emergency room doctor let us know about a child, uh, an infant with broken bones. Problem is there aren't enough investigators to go keep after the parents who are really hurting their kids, and instead they focus on these other cases, which is, again, not only it's not constitutional, it's a wasted use of limited resources and, in fact, results in children being exposed to grave, serious, fatal dangers and risks because those cases are not being pursued by these workers who choose to show up and knock on the door of, of a, a family where they're really, their children, again, haven't even been harmed or, and they're not at risk of any real harm. It's not a funny situation. It is just a horrible situation. So we believe the appropriate course to take, and as I say, I read this article today. I actually contacted the parents. I've already interacted with them via email. 
and the mother and father are contemplating my proposal that perhaps we file an action in Maryland against the state uh, child welfare services so that they are restrained, restrained from investigating and, and do, taking any action as to a parent simply because the child is left unsupervised unless, the caveat would always be, unless the child was in imminent danger of severe harm. Because otherwise, well, any time a child's left alone for even a minute, your child is waiting for you after the soccer match and you're running a little bit late because of traffic and you're not there to pick them up. Should you be arrested? Should your child be put in foster care? Is that really what we should allow? And, These and are Dr. some pretty Cohen, don't powerful. Don't even get me started on the this, medical yeah, issues. I got to stop about. you for a minute. We yeah. got to go to okay. break now, <laughs> but we'll okay. come back to this. Well, I'm with David. When we come Duluth, back, let's talk so about we'll medical back. care for children. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions. Especially in cases of divorce, far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. Today, I'm learning some things from David DeLucas. He is the founder and executive director of the National Association of Parents, which you can find online at ParentsUSA.org. And our stories are coming pretty rapidly today, but I think, Mr. DeLugas, you wanted to move on to talk about medical, uh, maybe excesses of concern about medical care for children? 
Correct. Um, probably everybody's heard the story about a situation where a child is not be receiving proper medical care because the parents have a particular view about, say, Western medicine. Uh, that's not what I am about to address, but it's been in the news quite a bit, and it's unfortunately becoming more and more common. Uh, there is uh, a medical doctor who sees a child, gives the child a diagnosis, advises the parents, and the parents decide they want a second opinion. Or, in other words, we eventually get to a place where there are two different medical doctors, both licensed to practice medicine, who give two different diagnoses. This happens to adults all the time. Do you do surgery or do you take this medication or do you wait it out? And as an adult, you're allowed to make a decision between the diagnosis of competing physicians. You're even allowed to ignore all of them. But for the parent who takes her child to a doctor and says, I want a second opinion, or a, the second doctor disagrees with the first and the parents decide to go back to the first doctor, the real tragedy is the doctor whose diagnosis and treatment plan is not being followed is obligated by law in most states to report that to Child Protective Services or Child Welfare as medical neglect by the parents. So now an investigation is opened up. And when the Child Protective Services learns that the parents are not complying with the diagnosis and treatment as provided by doctor number one, they then can go and swoop in and take the child away, put them under their foster care, and go. To, then you have to have a hearing where the parents are required to hire a lawyer, probably hire a lawyer, come in with their medical expert, and argue about which medical expert should be followed and a judge decide. Now, let's think about it. Who other than the parents should decide between competing physicians if both physicians are licensed to practice medicine? No one other than the parent. It's, it's, the proposition is so absurd, it's, it's um, mind-boggling to me that this is occurring across the country, but it is. And I'm I'm still in shock from the beginning of that story, (laughs) near the beginning, that that a doctor is actually required by law in some places to report it if parents refuse to follow the doctor's advice about caring for a a sick child. Uh, Yes, and and understand that, again, this is designed to to, uh, eliminate the situation where the parents just don't do treatment for a child who, in the absence of treatment, is going to suffer severe harm or die from the lack of medical care. But a case uh, in uh, Utah, parents to a mother, married mother took her child into the hospital with a high fever and the um, doctors did all the tests and said, well, we can't find out the reason for her fever. We'd like to do a spinal tap so as to rule out spinal meningitis, which can be very, very severe if, if that's what the uh, illness is. And the mother asked, what, what are the risks? And one of the risks is paralysis. And the mother said, well, look, everybody at home has the flu and is sick. Maybe this is just the flu. Couldn't it be the flu? And the doctor responded, yes, it could be, but we'd like to eliminate spinal meningitis. And the mother declined. But did the, was the doctor satisfied with that? No. Doctor so essentially called. you're saying the mother did a risk assessment, and she said the risk of uh, spinal tap is great, and the risk that this child actually has spinal meningitis seems low. So I'm going to wait a little bit and see if this is just the flu. Um, I, I would say that that's correct, except that the risk of uh, from a spinal tap and be, resulting in paralysis is also low. So they're both low. The, the, the question is, why do it at all? So she decided not to do it, but 
The doctors didn't let her leave the hospital. They called Child Protective Services, who immediately showed up, gave the doctors authority under the state law in Utah to go ahead and proceed with the spinal tap. Wow. Well, as it turns out, the child did not have spinal meningitis, good news, and also good news, the child suffered no ill consequence from the spinal tap, but could have. And let's face it, if the child were uh, paralyzed, they would just say, well, that's just a very low-risk consequence of this procedure. It's not malpractice. Sorry, your child's paralyzed. So um, that's one of the issues. And up in Boston, very famous case in the past year and a half, uh, Justina Pelletier was diagnosed with a psychological disorder by a medical doctor at Tufts University Medical Center. Not a quack, a medical doctor. But she had reason to go to the ER at Boston General Hospital a doctor there who was a resident uh, saw her, disagreed with the diagnosis and treatment that she had been, and by the way, she'd been functioning quite well, participating in ice skating, being, living a normal life of a teenager. But when her parents objected to this doctor, the, the second doctor at Boston General disagreed, said she doesn't have um, uh, this, Ill, this mitochondrial, I'm sorry, the first doctor said she had a mitochondrial illness, And the second doctor said, no, she doesn't. This is all in her head, and the parents are contributing to this, and therefore the parents are participating in medical neglect and got uh, the child into the child welfare, child protective system in Massachusetts where they prohibited the parents from seeing the child except one hour a week, including on Mother's Day, by golly. I mean, there's no real reason. So the case has been around for about a year and a half. A doctor decided, uh, I'm sorry, a judge heard testimony from, from two competing doctors. And here's the point I would take. Does it really, why should a judge rather than a parent decide between two competing doctors if both doctors are licensed to practice medicine in any of the states in the U.S.? Really, think about it. Think about the absurdity of tying up our court system, the bailiff, the sheriff, the lawyers involved, medical experts and testimony. This should just be the parents going, hmm, this doctor says this and this doctor says that. We're not sure which one's right, but we have more confidence in this doctrine, therefore we're going to go in that direction. I've proposed model legislation that I would like to see uh, the National Association of Parents try to get implemented and enacted in every state that says something as simple as, so long as the parents or legal guardian of a child is substantially complying with the diagnosis and treatment plan of a healthcare provider licensed to practice medicine in any of the 50 states, then no resources and no person, no resources of the state uh, and no individual may infringe upon the rights of the parent to make the decision as to which, as to the medical treatment and uh, diagnosis being followed. It seems yeah, in the case that you just described, there's one awful consequence of the decision for the state to intervene that you didn't emphasize. This child went into foster care. Foster uh, care yeah. is, is the, the not child, well, known the as child being a remained good in the hospital and, and the, they, they did not discharge the child from the hospital and she was cut off from her parents with whom she had had daily contact. She was living at home. And her older sister, who was doing well, had the same uh, mitochondrial disease. It was uh, apparently hereditary. hereditary. Again, the issue isn't what the real, real diagnosis is. Doctors do make mistakes and maybe the parents, these parents and other parents, might decide between, 
again, you and I might go to a cardiologist and one of them, one, uh, one says you need surgery and the other one says, no, you don't, you just need medication. You might make the wrong decision in the long run, as it turns out. But mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe the other decision would have been bad, had a bad outcome too. We don't know. There's no certainty in life. But as between competing doctors, this isn't not having any medical care. This is parents deciding on which medical care to provide their child as diagnosed and a treatment plan outlined by a doctor. In this case, in, for Justina Pelletier, I mean, people, parents, if you're listening, please Google that and read it. It's a horrifying story. How would you like to be a parent whose child is taken from you, not because you're not giving the child medical care, but because you're following the medical care of a well-respected doctor at Tufts University Medical Center in Connecticut? And you have competing doctors. Why should doctors compete? Why shouldn't the second doctor say, hey, I disagree with doctor so-and-so. I really would like you to consider the medical advice I'm giving you, giving you, Mr. and Mrs. Pelletier, and, and reconsider. But it's your right to decide which care to give. I'm really concerned about her. That yeah. should be the uh, end well, of the story. I understand. I understand your main point there, that it seems more appropriate for the parents to decide than for a judge to making that decision for a variety well, of reasons. It makes more sense that the parents would be in charge. Respectfully, Dr. Collin, you just used the phrase more appropriate. Think about that. That was one of the issues in our society is that we're, we're suggesting that it's maybe better, more appropriate. I'm saying it is the right of the parents under the Constitution and the right of no one else. This isn't a it might be better, or we ought to think about it that way. And again, I mean this respectfully. I'm just noticing how this slips into our culture that we're giving value judgments and suggesting, well, you know, it could be better. Maybe the judge will make a better decision than parents. Maybe the judge is more educated than parents. Hey, this is a judge who's going to make a decision between two competing physicians who are licensed to practice medicine. They're both MDs. The judge might make a better decision but it's not the judge's right to make the decision. It is only the parent's right. But in our system of government, we've taken this right from parents, and I consider that to be an infringement and wrong. And we okay, you've said a the- couple of times that this is a constitutional right. Parents have this right. Um, my history teachers didn't tell me that. I wonder if you could be a little more specific. What is it in the Constitution that says this should be up to the parents? This is not a place where any government agency should be getting involved. Um, I'd be happy to. Let let me, again, by analogy, backtrack a bit. Not backtrack, but give the broader picture. The 14th Amendment of the Constitution uh, provides, uh, as, again, the U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted, to the right of privacy and the right of the family. Um, not, not, not trying to be salacious, but, uh, for example, sodomy laws were at one time on the books where you couldn't engage in certain uh, sexual conduct between consenting adults in the privacy of your own home, in your own home, but the Supreme Court struck those laws down saying that, no, what consenting adults do in their own home is up to them, and that's the right of privacy as found within the 14th Amendment. Uh, regardless of where you stand on abortion, the same thing held true there where the, the Supreme Court decided that the, the right of a woman to decide what happens to her own body is her decision to make under the privacy rights and family rights. Um, so the 14th Amendment is, I, I, I don't know if I want to use the phrase catch-all, but it is within it 
that the U.S. Supreme Court has historically opined and continuously and without exception opined that parents have the right to make decisions about how to raise their children, except in the case where they bring actual harm to a child, only defined by the Supreme Court as physical harm or long-term emotional harm. So the Supreme Court actually doesn't describe risk of harm in there at all, but I'm going to assume that that's true. If you put your child in severe risk situations of imminent um, harm or death, uh, that's something that the state has a, a right to intervene because if we go back to the compelling state interest. Again, our Constitution and the infringement of rights is all based upon at what point does a state has a, have a compelling state interest so as to be allowed to infringe upon your rights in a free society. And there are, again, many instances where that's the case. Um, incidentally, it doesn't apply to the case of driving a vehicle because that's considered a privilege, not a right. Uh, but it, does, it is a right of parents uh, to raise their children as they deem appropriate. Now, you mentioned at the outset the notion of, well, I send my child to school, they don't always get taught what I would like them to get taught. Well, that's more in line with the idea that it is your contract that if you send them to school, you're giving the school permission to teach them what the school decides through the school board, through the school superintendent and the teachers that they're going to teach, and your, your right to object it has a certain limitation. You have the right to homeschool. You have the right to send them to private school. You don't have to send them to that particular school. So, again, your rights are balanced with the decisions that you are making for your child in the upbringing of your child. So let's go back to your question of where within the Constitution, it's within the 14th Amendment, the U.S. Supreme Court has opined on that many a time and said, well, it's the same thing. And, and um, when I was interviewed not long ago about Adrian Peterson and corporal punishment, I, I, I suggested that as a society it would be helpful if we didn't use broad brush terms such as corporal punishment because it invokes, and incidentally, this is another arena where is it the right of a parent to spank your child, beat your child, discipline your child, and in what ways are appropriate and when does the state have a right to intervene? And it comes back to the same language. It is your right as a parent to discipline your child and decide how to, well, how to do that up to the point where you cause long-term emotional or physical harm and the definition of those terms comes about through the evolution of our case law in appellate court decisions in each state, and each state may differ. Um, Delaware, as I understand it, and I haven't looked recently to confirm that, but I remember reading this, that Delaware has outlawed and made criminal any form of corporal punishment. So a light tap on the rear, uh, not that anybody would necessarily know unless they're looking through your window, uh, by a parent could... Um, bring the criminal authorities to bear uh, in, in Delaware and in other states, uh, you have to create some sort of a welt or bruise or, or some act, greater harm and what's appropriate level. The National Association of Parents doesn't take a position about what's the best uh, way to discipline or what's appropriate or what's level or what's the right. This is a society thing that we must do as a society, gain a consensus, but not have it be at the level where the person or the group of people who are the most offended say, well, it has to be this. You, you can't um, 
again, I wouldn't, I don't think I personally would spank my child. I don't think, and I haven't, he's eight. I've been fortunate he hasn't acted in a way that made me want to or think he should. Uh, I haven't had to do that. And my discipline of him has been very modest because he hasn't, but I haven't yelled at him because I don't think yelling is something. I, I get a firm and firm voice and frankly, he, he does what I say when I get that, that particular tone. It's not even allowed. It's a whispering, more or less, and saying, it's going to happen. Here's what you're going to do, and he does it. But that said, I don't think it's my right to tell other parents how to raise their kids. Maybe they want to raise their voice. Yeah, I don't recommend it, but the National Association of Parents, to some extent, stands for the, the constitutional right of parents not to be perfect, not to be judged by other parents and on their standard. Again, so long as they don't harm their child, um, it's, it's your right not to be a good parent. Um, All right, let's take another break here. But that's not what we're here for. Let's take another break here, and we'll come back. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. I'm talking with David DeLugas of the National Association of Parents, which you can find online at ParentsUSA.org. 
David, I wonder if you would just like to say a little more about the nature and the goals of the National Association of Parents. Um, thank you, Dr. Colin. Y- yes, it, the, the goal is pretty straightforward, to give parents a voice, a, a voice that's loud enough, strong enough, powerful enough so that other special interest groups, um, whether they just be those who have a particular view or position, don't cause laws to be enacted or public policy to be shaped without input from parents who are operating under the belief that, again, the constitutional notion of, I may not be a perfect parent, but these are my children. And I'd like to raise them as I decide, so long as I don't harm them or hurt them. I don't have to do it the way you think or someone else thinks, but I want to do it the way I, I think is right. And I, and that freedom is, is, Invaluable. And again, imagine as a parent someone poking their nose into your affairs, how quickly you, any parent, wants to tell other people, hey, I respect your views, you, whether you do or you don't, but look, this is my child. You, you raise your kids, let me raise mine. Again, the caveat, as long as you're not causing them actual harm, long-term emotional or physical. So that said, how can we accomplish that? Well, if parents get under the same umbrella... We may not agree on the outcomes of a particular position, but we should agree the, the gray area should be much broader and bigger. We, we as parents should collectively say, yeah, I kind of, I don't agree with you. I wouldn't do that with my child, but I respect your right to do that, and I wish you the best. Just be careful. Um, there's a plethora of information on the Internet all over the place, and government provides it on how to be a better parent, how to be a good parent. That's not what we as an organization stand for. We encourage parents to get that information, to consume it, read it, do it, do your best, try your hardest, love your child, be with your child, don't ignore your child, send your child positive messages, be a good role model. We encourage parents, but that's not what we're here to do. We're here to protect the right of parents. To do that, we need all parents to gather together. They, they need to go to parentsusa.org, join, become a member, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, um, donate money. It's, we're a 501c3. It's a charitable organization, it's tax deductible, it's year in. So whatever parents can do to help, because if we're going to go out as an organization and provide legal services, uh, particularly in the form of either class action or seeking a restraining order, to try to push back against these infringements and intrusions uh, before they happen, we need the support of parents. Uh, the the, matter, uh, the level of intrusion, again, creeps in and people don't even notice it because the caveat is, well, it's for the benefit of children. And all of a sudden, well, all, all rights are, can be infringed. It's, it's just what is done. Uh, in the family law arena, and, and recently I spoke at the Family Law Reform Conference in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, and one of the areas is where courts are telling parents, parents what they can and cannot do with their own children not in order to protect the children from harm, but to impose upon the parents what a particular individual judge thinks is better for the parents. And you can say, well, the parents don't have to go along with it because if they both agree the judge is um, going out of their, the judge is wrong, well, the, the parents can just not follow the judge's order. Well, that's not true. There's a court of appeals decision in Georgia uh, called Blackmore v. Blackmore, where the judge actually prohibited the parents from asking one another if they wanted to change or swap visitation time. And it prohibited the mother from going to any of the children's activities at school 
and any of the father from going to any of the activities at school or athletic events and the like during the time the children are with the other parent. So in that case, and I have no connection to that case, I wasn't an attorney in the case, and obviously not the parties in the case, but in that case, the judge told the parents, if it's dad's weekend and the children have two boy, a boy and a girl, and let, let, hypothetically, let's say one of them's playing football and the other one's a cheerleader, sorry about the gender stereotype, but if it's dad's weekend, mom can't come to the Friday night ball game. Everybody else in town can, but by court order, she's not allowed to. And on da- mom's weekends, dad's not allowed to. You know, what does the child think looking up into the stands? Like, how come my dad's not here? Does he not care about me? Is it because there's something wrong with him? Or is my mother not letting him? And vice versa on, on the dad's weekend when mom's not there. That type of control and micromanagement of parents by courts and custody cases is outrageous. It's obscene. It should never be allowed. But again, parents can't push back very well. In that particular case, the parents appealed to the Georgia Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals said, oh, the judge has the power to do that. Well, let me tell you something. We need laws in states to override judges when they make these types of decisions, or we need to push harder in the appellate court system so that these types of control micromanagement by uh, judges isn't allowed. And as I said, in the case of Blackmore, one of the problems is the parents might say, oh, you know, come on, you can come to the ballgame on Friday night. And, well, that parent does it at the risk of later the parents don't get along very well, and now they go back and file a contempt action, and the judge says, you don't have the right to override what my court order says. And judges get a little uppity when you do, so beware. So parents really should never be at risk of violating a court order when the court order is, in fact, a violation of the rights of the parents. And, Do and you know the that. background of that case that you're referring to, the Blackmore case? Um, just, cause it, I do. It I, I read like a lot un- of the trial case because I was so interested in how this ever came to be. It sounds like an unusual level of micromanagement by a judge. It sounds like these must have been parents who had an, a crazy high level of conflict with each other and just being exposed to that was so uh, awful for the kids. You know? see, so I'm trying to Dr. think what was going Dr. on in this judge's mind. <laughs> well, Dr. Connell, let me point out again, you did, you did exactly what a majority of people do. We figure, gee, the judge must have had a good reason to do that. Seriously, why is that the default position we as a society take? Well, the judge up in Massachusetts must have had a good decision for not allowing Justina Pelletier to see her parents but one hour a week. The judge in Georgia now, must have had a good I can't get behind day. that one. I can't, <laughs> okay. I can't see so how that could be. So here's the answer to your question in the Blackmore case. It's still wrong. Let me tell you what the judge should have done, even if, even if there was evidence that the parents don't get along to the point where it is really outrageous how they interact. The judge should have imposed a court order that said, you two are allowed to participate, attend, and be involved with your children's activities at school, extracurricular, and the like. What you're not allowed to do is the following behaviors. You're not allowed to argue in front, at these events. You're not allowed to interact with each other. You can restrict and limit behaviors and conduct, but not the mere attendance. Got you. Do you, you see the difference? But the I do, I do. do. And, you, and is the National Association of Parents working on model legislation yeah, I've actually, I've, I, we have drafted that. It was introduced in the Georgia legislature last year, but you know what legislators say all the time? 
well, what's going on in other states? Some state has to be the first state to enact such legislation. Secondly, um, what has to happen is legislators have to actually have the um, um, commitment to it. And, and the protectors, what happens and what I've discovered is what I hear, well, what does the Family Bar Association, uh, Family Law Section of the Georgia Bar say about that? Well, guess what? They oppose this type of legislation. Why would they oppose it? because it would reduce the amount of conflict between parents that they could make money on. Now, I'm talking again about my brethren, and if somebody in the Georgia Bar hears this and is upset, I'm sorry, but the reality is the Georgia Bar is the gatekeeper for legislation that would reduce conflict between parents because that would reduce the amount of legal fees generated. Why would judges be opposed to this? Because judges want complete control over the courtroom. They want the authority to do anything that they want to do, and I would suspect that in most cases judges think they're doing something best for the child. But you know what? In most cases, it seems to me what they're doing is going along with what one of the lawyers puts in front of them and says, my client would like this. Would you please impose it? The truth is I think a lot of parents become territorial and they ask a judge to restrict the other parent from attending activities of their child on weekends when they're with them, with that one parent, not because it's better for the child, but because that way they don't have to compete with the other parent for their child's attention. Because imagine the child who's out on the ball field or, or again, cheerleader or in marching band who's looking up and waving at mom or waving at dad. And the other parents, in some cases, unfortunately, is just jealous, offended, bothered that their child, my goodness gracious, actually loves both parents. Judges should not enable and encourage parents to act like this, and they should turn to the parents and say, look, I'm not going to tell that parent he or she cannot come to your kids' activities. Your kids want them there. And even if they don't necessarily want them there, the parent has a right to be there, and it's up to the parent to develop the relationship with the child that the child wants. So I'm not going to prohibit them from going, but I'm going to tell both of you, you can't misbehave when you're there. And if you do, I hope security takes you away and locks you up and you get charged with disrupting some public event. And if I, you, one of you misbehaves, I'm going to tell you if you misbehave, if you denigrate the other parent, if you get in an argument with the other parent, if you ever touch the other parent, I'm going to deal with you severely here. But I'm still not going to prohibit you from going. I may make, you know, uh, impose some other punishment against you. Um, recently I heard of a case where a parent who was, still trying to get back with his ex-wife, kept sending her text messages way too many every day and called her and went, she was a school teacher and he went to her, walked by her classroom at school when visiting with uh, their child who was in the same school. And the judge restricted the, the, this parent from going to the school anymore, from going to have lunch with his own child from doing all sorts of activities that he had historically done with his child in order to, quote, protect this other, the parent from being um, a wooed in a failed attempt of post-divorce uh, of reconciliation. Now, I frankly think that judges who do that are wrong. They need to say to the parent, you can't do this anymore. If you do this anymore, I'm going to put you in jail or I'm going to make you, you know, go pick up trash on the side of the road but I'm not going to limit your time with your child because that's now punishing the child. But judges don't tend to do this because they're frankly so, um, they're, they're acting on what they've always done. Nobody's telling them that how they're hurting the child or nobody's asserting the rights of the parent. 
And again, um, I'd like some common sense to be uh, put back into our judicial system, put back into our child welfare systems. Let's protect children. Let's look out for them. Let's, let, let's do what's right. But by golly, let's respect parents and let's do it together. So for everybody uh, who would like to join in with the effort, understanding that our agenda is really to protect the rights of all parents, married and unmarried, mothers and fathers, with only the idea that you have that right to raise your children and to interact with them, to be involved in their lives, um, please join us in this battle because it's a battle. It's a, it's a cultural battle because otherwise your children are going to be raised and you're going to be having to kowtow to what other people think you should be doing. All right. I'd like to thank you very much for being on the Family Matters show today. I'm Mr. David DeLugas of the National Association for Parents. Um, did I say that wrong or right? <laughs> That's right, National Association, National Association for, Parents. for Parents. Okay, yeah, because there's another uh, organization with a very similar name. <laughs> no, um, no, it's actually not similar. It's very different. It's a different name with a different uh, mission. Um, it, but it's the National Association of Parents. All right. Well, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.